So what happens in this passage is really fairly self-explanatory. It's not difficult to understand actually what transpires in this passage. And so tonight we're going to we'll just try to kind of look at it sort of below the surface level, see what's really going on here, who this man is, what's the significance of Joshua's interaction with him, and so forth. Uh, to begin with, in this section that we're looking at tonight, Joshua 5, 13 to 15, we read that Joshua was by Jericho. So you remember that the Israelites have crossed over from east to west. The, the Lord caused the waters of the Jordan to stop and to pile up upstream so that the people of Israel could cross over. Then they were at Gilgal where the whole nation was circumcised and we dealt with that. And so now everybody's healed up and the conquest is going to resume. What we read here is that Joshua was by Jericho. And some people suppose that he was praying and or maybe meditating on the things that the Lord had said to him, you know, be strong and courageous and so on and so forth. He's out here perhaps by himself, perhaps with some bodyguards or something like this. But Joshua is by Jericho. Some think, again, praying and meditating. Others think that perhaps he was surveying the city and its surrounding geography and considering strategy, for it's entirely possible, in fact, quite plausible, that before this meeting with the commander of the army of the Lord, that he had not yet been given a divine strategy for conquering Jericho. And so it's quite reasonable that he was thinking, okay, well, the next thing now is to take Jericho. How are we going to do it? What's the best way to approach the city and so forth? Either way, whether he's prayerfully preparing, seeking the Lord's help, whether he is meditating on what God has said to him and trying to prepare himself for the work, whether he is operating more as a strategist and doing some surveillance, whatever the case, whatever Joshua is doing, he is by Jericho and he is found here at the beginning of this passage in the path of duty. He's doing what the human leader of God's people really ought to be doing at this juncture. He's not passively sitting in his tent. He is actively thinking, okay, what is the next step here in terms of this conquest of this promised land? And it is at this juncture that God visits him. Matthew Henry uh, cites the oft-quoted proverb, God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> And he says, here is, here is Joshua, you know, in the path of duty, and the Lord comes and appears to him, and therefore we see an example of the truism that God helps those who help himself, help themselves. I mean, obviously that's not a Bible verse, uh, sort of, sometimes, <laughs> you know, but I do think in this case, the principle is true, that this does seem to be a divine approbation and commendation of Joshua's diligence. There's no real hint of rebuke here in this passage. In fact, quite the opposite. Surely this was encouraging to Joshua to meet the commander of the army of the Lord. And though we're not told about what conversation did or did not ensue, it is most likely that this supernatural strategy for conquering Jericho was likely revealed to him by the commander of the Lord's army. And so this does seem to be 
a divine approbation and commendation of Joshua's diligence. We see the fact that his sword was drawn and again commentators note that this indicates to us and to Joshua would have indicated to Joshua the rightness and the legitimacy of Joshua's sword being drawn and the sword of the people of Israel being drawn. Since this is the commander of the Lord's army and his sword is drawn, it stands to reason that everyone who lines up behind him are permitted now to draw their swords. You think about the old way of doing wars when guys would just sort of line up against each other in rows. When whoever was the leader would draw his sword and charge, that's the signal, now the rest of us may also. And so this drawn sword legitimizes what's going on here. And then Joshua would have been encouraged to see that the commander of the Lord's army was with them with a drawn sword indicating a willingness to fight on their behalf and for them. So, so this does seem to be divine approbation and commendation of Joshua. This is an encouraging counter, encounter rather than a um, discouraging and encounter in which he's chided or rebuked in some way. It's not that. So let's look a little more closely at the identity of this man that Joshua sees. And the first thing I would point out, which I don't think is rocket science, is that this man is actually divine. Look at verse 15. The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Now, where have you heard that before? Somebody just feel free to call it out. The burning bush. Right? Exodus chapter 3 and verse 5. God appears to Moses at the burning bush and he says, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, I, I, I think we would find it to be very blasphemous if someone who was a mere man said something of the sort to you. Right? So you might, if, if you entertained a visitor at your house, perhaps you might ask them to take off their shoes or something like this. But if the reason that you gave was they came in and they greeted you and you said, now take off your shoes because the place you are standing is holy ground, that would be really a bridge too far, wouldn't it? That would be understood by anyone who's familiar with Christian theology to be, if it was serious, a very blasphemous statement. And if it was not serious, a very irreverent and still somewhat blasphemous joke, right? So we see here very clearly when the commander of the Lord's army repeats the words which were uttered at the burning bush, there's clearly this illusion that it is the same person appearing to Joshua who originally appeared to Moses. And this is in fact the thrust of Joshua chapter 1, isn't it? If we rewind back. God says, I will be with you as I was with Moses. And so what's happening here is essentially the same sort of calling to this vocation to lead God's people that Moses himself experienced at the burning bush. And there is, of course, precedent for understanding 
one who appears to be a man as actually being the Lord. If we go back to Genesis chapter 18, we read that the Lord appeared to Abram by the oaks of Mamre, or he's Abraham by this time rather. The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Now what are we going to see? A burning bush, unapproachable light, what we've been told in chapter 18 and verse 1 that the Lord appears to Abram, Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. This sets up the expectation. As we go on reading, what will we expect to see? Well, in verse 2, surprisingly, this is how the appearance of the Lord to Abraham is described. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. As the narrative goes on, it becomes apparent to us that one of these men is the Lord. It's transliterated in our ESVs as L-O-R-D, capital L-O-R-D, which is the Hebrew name Yahweh. One of these men is Yahweh. Then in Genesis 22, verse 24, Oops, sorry, I have the wrong reference here. Genesis 32, I believe. Genesis 32 and verse 24. Yes, this is right. We read this as Jacob, it's the night before Jacob meets with Esau. And we read this. Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. The rest of this passage makes clear that again, this is a divine visitation. Jacob himself says in verse 30 of the same chapter, I have seen God face to face. So we're not without precedent for someone who appears to be a man actually being a divine figure. We see in this passage Joshua chapter 5, that this man who is divine receives worship. Verse 14, Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Now, in Revelation 19, John is so overwhelmed with the glory of everything that he's perceiving that he is about to bow down and worship an angel. And the angel says, no, 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 don't do that. Worship God. Likewise, in Acts chapter 10, verses 25 and 26, we read that when Peter, when Peter entered Cornelius' house, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, Stand up, I too am a man. The right response of someone who does not deserve worship, when worshipped, it's to tell the person who's worshiping you, get up, <laughs> worship God. Again, right? If someone were to bow before you and you just don't say anything, there's something wrong with that. There's something impious, irreverent, blasphemous about that. What is incumbent upon the person being worshiped if he is not to be worshiped, whether it's an angel or simply another man, is to say, look, stand up. Don't worship me, worship God. Jesus 
in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 9, receives worship without rebuking those who worship Him. This is, of course, after His resurrection. It's talking about the disciples, and it says that Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of His feet and worshipped Him. What did Jesus do? No, 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 stand up, I'm just a man. No, that's not what Jesus did. In verse 10, there's nothing of the sort. There's no rebuke. There's no chastisement. There's no contradiction. Jesus just moves on as if this is normal. And He says, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see Me. Jesus accepts the worship. Likewise, in John chapter 20 and verse 28, Thomas answered Jesus, My Lord and my God. Okay, Lord could be interpreted as being like simply someone superior. This is not Lord, capital L-O-R-D, like Yahweh, but this is like Sir, could, or could be reduced. It's within the semantic range to understand it, something like Sir, but not God. If someone comes and approaches me and calls me Sir, I'm not going to rebuke them. Those of you who know me know that I don't care for such things, but... At the same time, I'm not going to be like, no, that's improper. I'm just a man. Right? But if someone comes to me and says, my God, again, I'm going to contradict them. And I hope that, and I trust that you would do the same. We can receive things like, sir, but we must not receive things like, my God. And yet Jesus does here in this passage. In fact, he chides Thomas for not believing sooner that he is his Lord and his God. And... I was pressing a couple of Mormons that I was speaking to on this very point a couple of weeks ago, indicating to them that they need to, they need to clear up who exactly is Jesus, what is His relationship to the Father, and is He to be worshipped as the Father is to be worshipped. Admittedly, Trinitarian theology is somewhat hard to understand. And I admitted as much to that and we talked about Trinitarian theology and they were, they were trying to point out sort of the difficulties with Trinitarian theology. But what I was trying to point out to them was there, there are far more problems in non-Trinitarian theology than in Trinitarian theology. What we see in the instances where Jesus receives worship is that there is an implicit claim to be not subordinate to the Father, but equal to the Father and deserving of actually the very same worship as the Father. Now, what we, what we see and how this is relevant to the man back in Joshua chapter 5 is that many theologians take this as a pre-incarnate appearance of the Divine Son. In other words, as Matthew Henry says, we have reason to think that this man was the Son of God, the eternal Word, who, before he assumed the human nature for a perpetuity, frequently appeared in a human shape. What we see 
in Joshua 5 is no mere man. What we see in Joshua 5 is no mere angel either. For even, even the angel in Revelation 19 rejects worship not on the basis that he's one of the angels that you're not supposed to worship and that it's possible maybe to worship other angels. What the angel says in Revelation 19 is don't worship me, worship God. And so this man in Revelation, or pardon me, in Joshua chapter 5 is no mere man, nor is he a mere angel, but he is a divine person. And most theologians think with Henry that this is specifically the divine son prior to the incarnation appearing in human form. In the incarnation, when we read in John chapter 1 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, something different is happening than the Son merely appearing as in Matthew Henry's words, in human shape, which he did often throughout the Old Testament. In Genesis 18, when he appears to Abraham. In Genesis 32, when he appears to Jacob. In Joshua 5, when he appears to to Joshua. What we have is the Divine Son appearing to be human. What we have in the Incarnation is the Divine Son actually taking to Himself for all time, as uh, Matthew Henry says, for a perpetuity, human nature. Jesus weds himself, or the Son of God weds himself to humanity in the Incarnation in a way that he never did throughout the Old Testament. He simply appeared as a man in these, what the technical term is, Christophanies. And so, essentially what we have here I believe, and I think it's fair to say a majority of scholars would agree, what we have here is the pre-incarnate Son of God appearing to Joshua. And he self-titles himself the commander of the Lord's army. He identifies himself as the commander of the Lord's army. This is verse 14. Now whether this is this phrase is intended specifically to indicate an angelic army, or whether this phrase is simply intended to indicate that he is the commander of the army of Israel, which also belongs to the Lord, is not 100% certain. However, both are certainly true. To say that we're not sure exactly what, what is indicated or specified by this or that is, in a sense, a moot point, because both are true. Jesus is the commander of all of the angelic host, as well as he is in charge of the people of Israel who are now about to conquer Canaan. Matthew Henry puts it well and refers back actually to the incident where um, Jacob was about to meet Esau the same night that he wrestled that man. Prior to that, that same night, angels had appeared to him and in Genesis 32 and verse 1, he says, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Matthew Henry puts it well then, talking about this situation here in Joshua, when the commander of the Lord's army appears to Joshua. 
Here now, here we're now, as of old, Mahanaim, two camps, a host of Israelites ready to engage the Canaanites, and a host of angels to protect them therein. And he, this man, as captain of both, conducts the host of Israel and commands the host of angels to their assistance. Henry puts words in the commander of the Lord's army's mouth, endeavoring to paraphrase his reply. Not for your adversaries, you may be sure, but as captain of the host of the Lord have I now come. Not only for you as a friend, but over you as commander-in-chief. Uh, I think it was John Gill put it in a funny way. Here's Joshua as general, and then this man appears to him as generalissimo. <laughs> in other words, he's a step above him. Again, Joshua would be encouraged by this encounter to meet his superior with a drawn sword on his behalf, ready to reassure him that he has a divine commission and the divine presence and that there are in fact two camps here. This certainly would have been an encouraging encounter for Joshua. And what is Joshua's response? We could summarize it as submission and worship. We see in verse 14 that he fell face down before this man and he called him Lord and he called himself servant. What does my Lord say to his servant? Again, this, this Lord is not all capitals, L-O-R-D. So again, this sort of could be sir. What would you tell me to do, sir? What is your bidding, my master, whatever, something like this, right? There, this is submission. There's clearly deference here. There's a recognition that though he is, Joshua is himself the general, that this is the generalissimo, and that he must submit to him, that he must do his will. But more than that, we see not only does he defer to him, but we read that he actually worshipped. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. So there is, in response to this divine person who is with the people of Israel, endorsing their mission, calling them to their mission, empowering them and protecting them for their mission, there is this response of submission and worship on Joshua's part. Surely we can say that this is fitting. There's nothing in the text to indicate that Joshua should have responded otherwise. And in fact, quite the opposite. I don't even think we would bat an eyelid at the way Joshua responds. There's nothing surprising about it. It seems quite right that this is Joshua's response to defer to this one who is higher than him and in fact to worship this one who is higher than him. Obviously, the battle that we are engaged in as Christians in the 21st century, our conquest is not military. As the Word of God says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. 
However, we still have our battles to fight and a mission from Jesus to take ground, as it were, for Jesus. Matthew 28, right? All authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. We can't just say, all right, well, you know, Jesus, let's say the early disciples couldn't just say, all right, well, Jesus already has some people here in Israel. That's good enough. We don't need to geographically expand. Right? What we recognize is that there is this principle of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Again, this is not a geopolitical conquest. It's not a military conquest, but there is a very real sense in which we are to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and in that sense claim territory for Jesus, as it were. This passage is paradigmatic for the presence of Jesus and His angelic army with His people in all that He has called us to. Just as there were at this time in Joshua 5, two camps. Just as it wasn't really simply the people of Israel versus the people of Canaan. But there was Christ Himself at the head and there was also that angelic assistance to be with them, to help them in this endeavor. So there still are two camps. We live perpetually in Mahanaim, as it were. Hebrews chapter 1 and 14 says to us that angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. The concept of guardian angels is an embellished and unfounded application of this idea. I don't think, it's certainly not necessary, let me say, that each one of us has a particular angel assigned to us. There's nothing in scripture that would indicate to us that this is the way we ought to conceive of it. But we ought not to conceive of it as if it is literally just us. And that everything we do, all the danger we encounter in the world, all the opposition, all the obstacles, that is just us. We ought to recognize that Christ is indeed with us. And that He is the commander of the Lord's army still. Which, in at one level, means us. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, He's speaking to us, and make disciples of all nations. We have a mission to go and to conquer, as it were, for Christ at His bidding and under His banner. But there is also an angelic camp helping us. This doesn't receive much attention at all, I don't think, in circles that try to avoid the excesses of those in which this receives much attention. (laughs) I think sometimes perhaps we reject a very thoroughly developed angelology and we reject the paradigm in which everything is demonic opposition. Demons behind every bush and every misbehavior and every incident that ever happens and angels helping us and this and that, you know? Sometimes it receives too much attention. 
but sometimes perhaps we swing the pendulum to the opposite end and we forget that this is indeed Mahaneum and that there are two camps. We ought to remember as Elisha showed his servant that there are more who are with us than there are those who are against us. Since this is the case, and Jesus and the angelic hosts are with us in what we have been called to do, let us then, as Joshua was, be encouraged. Let us behold, as it were, with the eyes of faith, Christ with His drawn sword, bidding us to go forward, not to retreat, not to shrink back, not to be afraid, but to go ahead, be strong and courageous, and do that which we have been called to do. And to recognize that as we go, Christ goes at our helm with a drawn sword. And that there is a camp of ministering spirits with us. That this is Mahaneum. We carry out our commission in the context of Mahaneum. And let us then respond the same way that Joshua responded. With deference and with worship. Let us likewise bow at the feet of Jesus and, and say as... Joshua did. What does my Lord say to his servant? What would you have me do today? What would you have us do this week? What, what should we be doing at CRBC? What should we be doing in our family? How are we to use our money? How are we to use our time? How are we to use our energy? What does my Lord say to his servant? And we ought to worship. There ought not to be simply a cold and calculated deference to Christ but there ought to be a recognition that we are truly in the presence of greatness of one who ought to be worshipped that the place in, upon which we stand truly is holy ground and there ought to be a, a, not just a deference but a worshipful reverence toward God as we go about our lives often we think only on the natural plane. We see only the camp of the Israelites and the city of Jericho. But from time to time, the Lord shows us, reveals Himself to us, as He did here to Joshua. Pulls back our a curtain, as it were, and gives us with the eyes of faith, I'm not trying to say literally it, but with the eyes of faith gives us a glimpse of the commander of the Lord's army and of the spiritual reality that there are those, there are more of those with us than are against us. Let us behold these things as we are taught them in Scripture, imbibe them, incorporate them into our worldview and the way that we think about this life and what we've been called to do and the resources that are at our disposal and the obstacles that stand against us and the possibility of success and failure and so on and so forth. Let us incorporate these things and follow obediently and worshipfully, worshipfully as the head of the church leads us on in our conquest.